Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Today, all of the television network news departments are run by women. The leaders of Fox, NBC, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, and CNN are all women. The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, AP, Reuters, McClatchy, Fortune, and even the CEO of The New York Times are all women. If you had suggested this would be the case as recently as 20 years ago, it would have been met with derision and disbelief. Like any movement, though, this didn't happen overnight. Many women and some men devoted their full measure of devotion to making this a reality. The shoulders on which today's women stand are numerous. They range from the early pioneering success of women like Margaret Fuller to the investigative triumphs of Nellie Bly, Ida Tarbell, and Ida B. Wells, to the exceptional careers of women like Martha Gellhorn, Rachel Carson, Janet Malcolm, Joan Didion, Cokie Roberts, and Charlene Hunter-Galt, among others. Beyond the struggles, though, is also the significant impact that women have had on the profession of journalism, a profession that even today is still dominated by men. This is a story of undaunted personal courage, relentless pursuit of public truth, and the power of news and information in the hands of women. We're going to delve into this rich and complex history today with my guest, Brooke Kroger. She's the author of the new book, Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism. Brooke Kroger is a professor emerita at New York University, where she was the founding director of the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. She was U.N. correspondent for Newsday, deputy metropolitan editor at New York Newsday, and for more than a decade, a correspondent, editor, and bureau and division chief for United Press International. She is the author of six previous books. Her latest is Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm totally going to steal your introduction. That was fabulous. (laughs) Delighted. Thank you. As you were working on this book, as you were digging into this this remarkable history that really goes back to, to the 19th century, talk about how you squared that with the reality that you see today, the way the world of women in journalism, women in news, has changed so dramatically, and, and having an understanding of what the history is and what that tells you about where we are today. That's a, that's a big bite. So I would say that I come to what we're doing today from looking at that history decade by decade over 180 years, starting which in a typical place to start in 1840 when we think of the early beginnings of mass media. And by by cataloging that story in that very methodical way on this very long continuum, you really do see how we get to today. And I love that you started with this preponderance of women in charge and how strange that would have been 20 or 30 years ago. I agree with you about that. The scary part of that is that when you know the history, you realize that when women are having surpassing opportunity like this, usually things are in trouble. So that's the scary part of that information, which I wouldn't have come to without having catalog the history. So you see that in wartime, uh, men have gone off to war, so jobs open up. That's a time women get opportunity. When organizations are failing or in crisis, that's when women get opportunity. That has just been happening forever. And um, so that's what I'd say about that. Expand on that a little bit in terms of 
the the failing nature, what you perceive and talk about as the failing nature of the business, and and why that presents opportunities for women, and what you see as the potential to come out of that. I, I think I could speak to my own experience, which is not in the book. I do not write about myself. There's you know a couple of end notes where I just explain why I know something, but that's about it. So I um, started in a terrible job market in uh, graduating from Columbia in 1972 from the graduate school. I started in Chicago in the AP Bureau for three months as a vacation reliever. They didn't have an opening. The bureau manager sent me to the UPI Chicago Bureau, where Ann Keegan, who was a brilliant correspondent who's mentioned in the book, had just gone to the Chicago Tribune, and I got her job. And this is 1972, and I'm 22 years old. And um, that was the time of the Vietnam War. Men were gone or getting drafted. So <clears throat> there was opportunity for women. That was a very typical way women got in. And women like Ann Keegan would you know, re remark upon how fabulous it was that opportunities were opening largely for that reason. And of course, the aftermath of the civil rights legislation of the mid 60s, which took a long time for women to understand it applied to them, but they figured that out. They did use that instrument as well. So companies were attuned to having women come. So that's what I'm talking about. And then later on, or even earlier, like even in the 30s, every once in a while, a woman becomes the city editor of a mainstream newspaper. And within a year or two, that newspaper is gone. So that that is a sign of that. And at a place like UPI, which was always in financial crisis, always, to have the best possible reporters you could afford meant looking beyond the, you know, what we would have called the white alpha males. So women would come to the fore. That was the way women got opportunity. So I'm very grateful for Vietnam, for, <laughs> for failing companies and other things like that, because um, I didn't leave for over a decade because I kept getting promoted and getting fantastic jobs. By the time I became division editor for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, I think more than half of our bureau chiefs were women. And Gene Blaby, who was our vice president, would you know think of himself as Phil Spitalmy and that all-girl orchestra and exactly make the point I have just made. To what extent has it had an impact on the business of journalism itself and the way it has changed and evolved over time. Talk about the ways in which women have shaped that. Well, first of all, the the, the first time we see like change that is very women-centric comes in the 1880s and 1890s. Women uh, are real precursors to serious investigative reporting. And we see that in the three you mentioned, Nellie Bly, who does what we call stunt work, but always with a very social conscious edge. You know, she's dealing with real social problems through these experiential immersion techniques that she hones. And then not long after, very, very soon on her heels come the two Idas, who really use documents and evidence to, to show uh, real social wrongs that they are dealing with, both in terms of, of course, in Ida Tarbell's case, Standard Oil and the monopolistic practices, and in Ida B. Wells's case, uh, her cataloging of lynching across the country. So 
those are things that women did. You know, did they just happen to do that? In the case of Bly, part of that conceit was all-American girl, watch me, see what I can do, uh, a new way of being a woman. And then not long after, but in basically the same period, we see the interview develop as a technique. Now, I'm not saying that women started it. I can't, I don't have no idea if they started it, but I do know that they were very good at it. And it's something that they got assigned. Another thing they were good at that was a detriment was society, gossip, food, fashion, things that men really didn't want to do, but that brought in lots of revenue. So that was a way women found entry into the field thinking in some cases, I mean, some women enjoyed doing that work and no disrespect intended, but others saw it as a way in the door that they could segue themselves out of that pen. And that was very, very difficult, except in the cases of the most exceptional, which is who this book is pretty much about. Talk about the resistance that these women faced. Oh, man, it, it, <laughs> it was really difficult. So except for the exceptions, which we could talk about at length, and there were always exceptions. If you were extraordinary, you had no problems. It's the ordinary mass of, you know, A, A plus women who were pretty good, who had, who often had difficulties. It starts with the sense of the women's sphere, home, children, family, where you belong. So breaking out of that already was something of a struggle. On top of that, you had um, the the attitude of, uh, of men about women. There was a sense that women congenitally could not think, were not capable of categorizing knowledge, of organizing their thoughts, that they had disorganized minds. And this came from the schooling that was available to those who were able to be schooled, which was basically charm school in most cases. There wasn't really any effort to train them systematically in the very early days. So you see that Margaret Fuller and people like her started conversations, starting finding ways to, to give women training. In the newsrooms, the training system was apprenticeship. Women were barred from apprenticeship. So if they were going to learn at all in a newsroom, and we're talking about very, very few women, it was, you know, by osmosis. They had no other way to really do that. Those were things that were standing against them as they came into the field. And, you know, where does this come from? Does this come from one experience or just plain old prejudice that they were inaccurate, that they were incapable of writing accurately, that they exaggerated? I mean, these were saws that just came in. Also, remember the clothing of the Victorian era, skirts down to the floor? How are you going to, you know, bound up three flights of stairs in that getup? Uh, there was the question of chaperones, which was very important in Victorian times. A woman wasn't supposed to be on the street after dark alone, really, almost at any time. So newsrooms, if they were going to have women as reporters, needed to provide an escort, which, of course, they balked at because that was a question of expense. Or, you know, some editors were just so chivalrous, or you know, that was the excuse, that they wouldn't even let their women report at night, which is very limiting. Well, if a reporter is that limiting, why are you going to hire them? So these were all major impediments. I, I could go on with the longer list. Jump forward a little bit. Talk about the late 50s, really through the, the early 70s, a time in which 
social and cultural and political issues merge together in so many respects and whether that provided opportunity for women because some of those other areas that they were covering were really the things that were driving the politics and the issues of the day. Um, you know, I just did a recent event with Lynn Schur, who was very early at the table of all these questions and was, you know, considered the hired feminist, uh, both in at the AP and also um, at ABC. And she she just talked about this recently, that even though she was hired for that purpose, nobody really wanted to run those stories. So that was an impediment. As I said before, the civil rights legislation did make a difference once women figured out it was a tool they could use to force their organizations to be more equitable. Not that it worked so well, but it did you know, create a dent. So you had a point where in 1970, Newsweek starting, the women at Newsweek starting it, where something like 10 different organizations, both Newsweeklies and newspapers, where the women gathered together and filed suits, you know, filed uh, discrimination suits. That prevailed in various ways at the various organizations. So that creates a consciousness and a willingness to try, even though the trying seemed to take an awfully long time at the most self-satisfied of, of the organizations, the strongest, the ones, the most elite, struggled much with much more difficulty to get to a point where they were really giving opportunity to women. On the other hand, you could have, you know, someone like Susan Chira, who arrives at the New York Times with Japanese and uh, a degree from Harvard in East Asian Studies, and within three years, she does get sent to Japan. There were those opportunities that were happening largely because the onus was so strong to start doing so. But, you know, this comes out of a time where at places like Newsweek in, in the 60s, uh, up till the time the suit is filed in, I think, 1970, don't hold me to that, um, but close, um, you know, women would get hired with exactly the same CV resume as a young man coming straight out of school. And he would get hired as a reporter and she would get hired to clip clippings, you know, and put them in folders so he could write the stories. I mean, that's just the way it was. And for a long time, women just accepted this. It took a long time and it took the feminist movement. Uh, we have to credit Betty Friedan here with the feminine mystique where women got the click and understood that, whoa, there's something terribly wrong about this and, and change happened incrementally, but change started to come. Was there a difference with respect to the way that change came in the different media outlets? Was there a difference, for example, between newspapers and wire services and radio and television and magazines? Was there a difference in the way the evolution went forward? Sometimes it had to do with the organization itself. So let's look at the news weeklies where... Um, you know, the situation was pretty dire for women who were working there over against the New Yorker, where Jane Grant had founded the magazine with her husband, Harold Ross. So who was Jane Grant was a great feminist. She worked at the New York Times and was considered one of the first women to be put on, you know, city desk metro kind of reporting um, after a long time being a stenographer, of course. Um, but there there was like a, a, a you know, a feminine um, orientation at the New Yorker where women, you know, were considered on par with men, even as writers. So it was very different than look, life, time, Newsweek. 
et cetera. I don't know about U.S. News, probably the same story, um, but something like that. Uh, so that that was one thing. Then, it, like UPI and AP were different. AP was wealthy. AP, you know, didn't have financial issues. It's a cooperative, so they were supported by the papers. UPI was on its own on a profit scale, which was never profitable. So there were there was much more opportunity for women at UPI than there was at AP, for example, in the days when they would have been considered competitors. I don't think anyone would say that today, but, you know, up until the time Scripps Howard bowed out, which would have been 83, 82, 83, when I left. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, you know, that would, that would depend. In magazines, magazines have small staffs and do a lot of by freelance. So we know that the tendency for the big cover stories, I think if you counted them up at most magazines, women would fare less well, even today. I mean, we've heard intimations of that. And then at broadcast, you had another whole set of issues about appearance. That's a huge one. So and there's some wonderful stories in the book from the um, 70s, I think, where you've got you know, some fabulous broadcast figures like Leslie Stahl and Connie Chung all approaching 40. And the rumors are aloft about, you know, this aging out, aging out at 40. Think about that. I don't think they ever said that to men. Um, Except and in worrying sports. about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, but yes, so, so that was happening. And there's a wonderful quote from a magazine of Leslie Stahl saying, I'm riding my crest. I'm at my prime, you know, which, of course, turns out to be true. So good for her. There was also the sense with broadcast, the, the whole issue, the whole illusion of authority that was such an issue at the time, at, at a certain totally. time. And that women's, women's voices, even in radio, were considered a right. problem. So there's this whole other layer of things that, of course, writers who were just writers and otherwise unseen never had to contend with. Talk a little bit about the actual work itself as you research this and, and look through it, particularly more contemporary. The differences, if they exist at all, in the approach, in the work, in the tone between work done by women versus men at, at newspapers in particular. So, you know, the saw about that would be that women's work is more humanitarian oriented, that women, you know, would show more of an emotional, compassionate side to things. That is that is not where I went with this book. I was looking for examples of women who performed in a way that men would admire or envy, you know, that they were doing what it, it was completely comparable. That's what I was really looking for and seeing what women were able to do that in 1950 when it really wasn't possible, but they could, or in 1940, the war reporting, and there's extraordinary war reporting. Of course, there's Martha Gellhorn, whom we're familiar with, but a bunch you're not familiar with, who just did extraordinary work. Or I, I highlighted from women you'll never hear about, you know, never know, but now you'll love, I think, um, how they went about their work. And as I'm writing it, I'm thinking, this is something anybody would admire because of the approach, because of the depth of the reporting, because of the persistence, because of those qualities that we just admire in the reporters we admire the most. And, you know, did they get their due sometimes, but often not? I don't worry about people being forgotten because most journalists who are men are also forgotten. It's ephemeral work. It's meant to disappear. 
But when it does last, you know, so then we'd be talking about Rachel Carson, Joan Didion, um, Hannah Arendt. Um, when it lasts 50 years later, people are having symposia about your story. Goodness me, you know, that's just the ultimate, isn't it? And how, how many men are we doing symposia about on the 50th anniversary of their stories? Some, some, but four women, most of whom in a time when women were considered ciphers, it's pretty impressive. Talk about the difference and what you found with respect to photojournalists, because it did seem like that was an area that, that more women got involved in earlier. Margaret Burke White being perhaps the penultimate example. Uh, there are earlier ones than she um, that I, you know, dug out, like Sophie Nettler Miller, who in the 1890s was covering the Baltimore Orioles for the Baltimore Telegram with her camera and her pen. The Telegram doesn't exist anymore. There are no known copies, unfortunately, because I was dying to see her stories. But the Washington Post was writing about her, saying that other people were picking up the things she was saying. She really understood her sports. So there are people like like her. And then she goes on to, you know, interview Pancho Villa before anyone else has done so. I think so, or at least the first woman to do so. Um, she covers the Balkans. She, she just uh, leper colonies in Hawaii, the Klondike. I mean, she's just doing it all. And that goes on for 20 years really effectively. There are people like Jesse Tarbox Beale who were really artists, you know, like they were like she does the St. Louis World's Fair and you can't help but notice those photographs. And then, of course, the Depression era photographs um, that are lasting and probably the most important ones we think of. Um, there were plenty of women doing this well. And also Margaret Burke White, who gets it, you know, mostly for her World War II coverage that we remember the most. Uh, but she was not alone. There there were several, often husband and wife teams. That's not unusual. We also see that in very early war coverage in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, uh, Spanish-American War, Greece, the Philippines, um, East Asia. And we just see a lot of women that we've just forgotten about. I always get a little annoyed when firsts are being claimed that just really are not firsts. I think that's something people should give up. I mean, a lot of obituaries with the words trailblazer and <laughs> they're, they're not trailblazers. I, I hope this book will give the lie to that. I really do. When did things start to change with respect to the business side of journalism? When did we start to see more women get involved in, in the business side of and journalism in all to, areas? To, yeah. Promoted to leadership is right. what you're saying, right? So we see, as I said, we see it in early cases where places are falling apart. That that's that's a place you get leadership. I mean, I, I was 32 years old in 1970, whatever it was, 70, 82, to be running a third of the world for you know a major wire service. Uh, that was not going to happen anywhere else. I assure you, things like that. Um, you more recently, as as you noted in your introduction with this mass of women running things, which of course gives me pause because of what I've been reporting on for several years now. Um, you find some wonderful things happening. Like for example, at three nonprofits that I know of, and I'm sure more, um, 
the Kaiser Foundation Health Newsletter, um, Marshall Project, and um, the 19th, which is, you know, women and diversity-centric uh, newswire, um, news site. Um, they have the most advanced benefit packages. So that's an area where I'm seeing some women impact in nonprofits. And as Emily Ramshaw said to me, it's quoted at the end of the book, well, if three women running organizations, a group of women running organizations can do this, you know, maybe the big guys will learn to play in this sandpit too. I mean, they're very advanced benefit packages way ahead of the industry. So I think that's pretty interesting. You know, is it incidental that there are women running them? You know, hmm, I don't think so. But again, it's also an industry, I mean, to come back to your early point, it's also an industry that is struggling and in trouble. Yep. Correct. At, at every level. Correct. So, you know, we hope these nonprofits are going to survive and figure out models that might help sustain. But I think jury's still out. Talk about the impact that, bringing it up to more contemporary times even, the impact that Me Too has had on, on this whole area. Oh, good question. Um, and we should also talk about gender and race, which is another interesting through line of, of the book. But the Me Too question, uh, I do a, a lot with Me Too uh, in, in one of the ch later chapters. And, you know, I think what we could say is that you know, we feel that the peak has come and now things are sort of in, you know, more decline, but what happened has held. What happened has held. None of those men, so far as I know, has found his way back into grace. Um, you know, there was very little distinction in the level of what happened to any of them. We could talk about that, but no one's back. No one's life has been put back on track in a way that one would hope or would have happened in earlier days. And you think about all the earlier <laughs> times when things like this have happened and there was no consequence. In this case, there's been consequence. And I don't know if you'd agree with me about this, but I think it would be much more difficult to decide to behave in ways that you've seen that kind of behavior over a long time, and there isn't a woman I know who can't tell you a story or 10, um, you know, from a mild one to a horrific one, I don't think that could happen in quite the same way anymore. So that's big, don't you think? Yes. And, and the fact, it, it's interesting because you talk about none of them coming back, which is absolutely true, but it comes back around to this idea that, that most of these companies that most of them came from are being run by women today. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but, I, you know, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that, but I I don't think it would make any difference. I think you're not, you you can't do that anymore in quite the same right. way. No. You just I, I agree with you. I don't think it would make any yeah. difference at so all. I don't think it would. It's but just it's an interesting. interesting irony of the whole yeah. saga. It is, yeah, just like the fact that all these women are in charge and everything, everyone's in trouble. Uh, which isn't new, and that's happened in a lot of industries. And, you know, it, it reminds me of that old UPI experience. You look beyond the places you are com most comfortable looking when you've got to pull a rabbit out of a hat. What do you see as the future right now? I mean, we talked about all these women that are that are in place right now in, in various positions at these companies. What, is, what does the future look like in terms of women in journalism? 
I, I, I'm concerned about sustainability uh, for sure. Expand on that sustainability with regards to what? For just great news organizations being able to sustain. And we see shifts in audience preferences about where people go to get news, about how they get it. There are real questions about news literacy, um, who you're going to for information, how you're able to parse what's good information and what's chaff. Um, all these are huge questions of the time, in addition to the economic ones. It is interesting because they are all questions that the news business is struggling with. And there does seem to be differences, maybe somewhat more pronounced or at least somewhat different in the context of, of media today in terms of, of how different you know gender groups get their information. I mean, like everything else, it everything is becoming more siloed. Um, the long tail gets longer all the time. Yeah. And all of that will, I think, play a role in, in how all this plays out. Also, and the fact that people like to seem to like to be, have, have their own feelings reinforced rather than to learn something new or to look at something in a different way. There's that to contend with. Um, there's just a lot on the table that's worrisome. A lot on the table that gender and gender approaches may play a role in either making worse or helping to solve. Unclear. We're going to sit and watch, aren't we? <laughs> That's what we're going to have to do. Indeed. And and I don't think we can you know leave out the race question either. So that has been very interesting to me as a through line of the book, going all the way back to the beginning to see how young women trying to find a way in, not to write about rubber raincoats, um, were employed by the abolition press for the reasons I've just described, because the abolition press was not financially, you know, afoot, and were writing for the abolition press. Their work gets seen by the Atlantic, by the New York Times, and I'm talking about a very few exceptional women, but opportunity came. That was a great way in the door. And then later on, we see a lot of examples of how race and gender have affected things. Um, there's a wonderful Charlene Hunter Galt episode in the book where she um, goes to Chicago. I've told the story a couple of times, but she goes to Chicago to report on an important meeting of black women. This would be in the late sixties, maybe early, early, early 1970 and uh, comes back having written the story and dictated it as one did in those days to, you know, X number of editors, and everywhere she had written black had been changed to Negro in print. And so she went ballistic and writes a big memo to all these editors, and the Times changed its policy. So, you know, is that a woman thing? I don't know, but uh, that did happen. Things like that. And then later we see uh, from the 1619 Project, just to bring it up to the present, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates told me, or actually has said in print, uh, let me correct that, that, you know, his work is controversial. He has never had to face what Nicole Hannah-Jones has had to face in terms of being pilloried by the internet and other places, you know, just to the kind of abuse that comes if you happen to also be a woman. Everything old is new again. Everything old is new. And then, of course, we've seen so much of that in terms of the treatment of women online, 
when they are dealing with sensitive and controversial themes, um, as Nicole Hannah-Jones has, and but women all over the world. And yes, men also face abuse for these things, but not having their, you know, maybe they're called hacks or maybe they're called idiots, but they don't have their face photoshopped onto some grotesque sexualized image that, that is not happening. And then having their families threatened and their, you know, houses threatened and their children. No. So, you know, it just ain't over. Brooke Kroger, the book is Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism. Brooke, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for asking me. And this was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.